uh, are picking up where we last left off. Um, uh, the first portion of 1 Samuel 14 is a, a thrilling chapter that details Jonathan and his armor bearer uh, uh, making an audacious attack on the Philistines, Philistines and being successful and um, sending them running and fleeing. And verse 23 says that the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed on beyond beth They won the battle, but now the fighting continues as the Philistines are making their escape. And that's where we're picking up in verse 24. We will read uh, through verse 46, starting in 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground, and when the people entered the forest, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You've dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people. Say to them, Let every, every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, that's God, did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people. And know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. Let me just pause there to remind you what this is referring to. We read about this in Exodus 28. The high priest has a, a breastplate of judgment, and, and it appears that it's very kind of confusing, but it seems that there are two stones that are on that breastplate of judgment uh, one called 
Urim, one called Thuman. They, they're probably two stones, one of one, of one color, one, like one a dark color, one a light color. But the high priest would use that to find direction for the people of God, to, to find um, answers from the Lord. They would make a petition to the Lord, and whichever stone he pulled out, that would kind of give the answer. So that's what Saul is asking the priest to do. If we, He wants to know who sinned so that that the Lord's not answering him and not letting them go down to the Philistines. So he says, if we pull out Urim through him, we're going to know who it is. So that's the reference there. Um, okay, so back to verse 41. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not uh, one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went down to their own place. And there we end the reading of God's word. In August of just this past year, uh, West Point held a pretty exciting event. They had discovered underneath a, a monument uh, on, on uh, their campus a 200-year-old time capsule. They were doing renovations on this monument, and uh, they had moved the foundation that had not been touched in it since the monument was erected, and underneath they found this time capsule. So they decided that it would be cool to open it during a live stream event on campus. There was a video that was released from the school inviting people to come to the auditorium when they had this event or to watch online, and they say in the video, quote, we literally will uncover this piece of history. They're going to literally uncover history. So people were invited to write in guesses of what they thought might be in the time capsule. And so on the day of the event, uh, the, the auditorium was packed. The stage was filled with historians uh, who were brought in to give commentary on the significance of the monument, on the significance of the school, on the significance of this time capsule, this time period. And at long last, uh, you know, they, they bring out these... Um, people from the museum who are trained in this sort of stuff, they have their gloves and their mask on, to open up the time capsule. There's all these media outlets there, and uh, if you haven't guessed it by now, there is nothing, absolutely nothing inside the time capsule. So where uh, there would have been maybe applause or oohs and ahs from the audience, there was an outburst of laughter. It was uh, humiliating for um, some of those people up on stage. Uh, nothing there. And the embarrassment on the presenter's face was obvious. Uh, they had done the event upright. They had gone through the hype and the excitement, but there was no payoff. Well, I want you to imagine with me, what if the exhibit, or, uh, the exhibit on stage wasn't this time capsule, but was actually uh, the heart and soul of King Saul? Uh, it, it, it's been done upright. There's a lot of... Um, uh, on the exterior, things that make it look um, 
religiously appealing. It seems right. It appears to be pious and religious. But if you were to open it up, what you'd find on the inside is absolutely nothing. Because Saul is practicing empty religion. There's religion. There's religiosity all over this chapter, all over it. Um, Religious fanfare uh, throughout this account that we've just read. And yet even with all that religious fanfare, his religious life is actually empty. Here we find a man interested in religion for all the wrong reasons. Here is a religiosity that is entirely divorced from any sort of spirituality. Usually, at least in our day and age, you, you hear the inverse, right? People say they're spiritual but not religious. Saul is religious but not spiritual. Here we find uh, what uh, issue we have with the Pharisees later on in, in the Bible. We find that in seedling form. They're concerned with the externals but not the heart, worried about the letter of the law, but not practicing the spirit of it. Uh, that's what we see today. There's a lot to unpack, but I want us to just focus on, on two main things. First, the difference between empty religion and real religion. I want us to see the difference between the two so that we can find it in our lives, this empty religion. And then we're going to consider, secondly, the danger of empty religion so that once we've found it, we can flee it. So hopefully that, that's clear to you. We're going to see the difference we, wanna, we kind of want to unpack the anatomy of empty religion, of false religion, and, and do that with a discerning eye to ourselves. Is this something that perhaps I am falling prey to? And we do that so we see the danger and would flee it and run to our God in full repentance. In terms of the difference, although they might on the outside appear similar, empty religion is different from its honest counterpart in that it cannot do the two main things that religion exists for, It cannot glorify God, and it cannot foster human flourishing. We read earlier in our service the two great commandments, loving the Lord and loving our neighbor. Real religion helps people to do just that, to lift high the name of Jesus, to lift high the the glories of God, and to foster what is good and and what will be well for our neighbors. And we see here that, um, that empty religion cannot do that. Let's consider first how... Empty religion cannot foster human flourishing. Look back at the beginning of our text, which is in verse 24. Actually, I want you to look at verse 23, which we read last time. We're alerted to the fact that something is not right in those two verses. Verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. That's the day that Jonathan and his armor bearer went up and had that awesome victory against the garrison of the Philistines. And the battle then passed on behind Beth-Avon, then it says, and, but really should be, but, but the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So both those verses are talking about the same day. Interesting, Israel experiences two things simultaneously. They experience salvation and victory, thanks to Jonathan, but then it says they are hard-pressed. And we're going to learn that's thanks to Saul. They can't, they're distressed, they're harassed, they can't fully enjoy their salvation. Hard-pressed, if you look back to chapter 13... And verse 6, I believe, um, yes, this is how it describes their condition under the Philistine attack. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, then they go hide. And so what's the author doing? He's saying here by using the same term that their condition under the leadership of Saul isn't a whole lot better than their condition under the threat of enemies. Saul is, King Saul is, uh, in some respects, his leadership is no better than the oppression of 
of the Philistines. And that's because Saul has divorced his leadership from a right understanding of and a submission to God's law. Because he's done that, things go awry and people get hurt. The nation is distressed. Then we're going to see soldiers hunger. Jonathan's life is threatened by a rash vow that uh, Saul makes. Saul calls for a fast. That's a religious thing. He wants to uh, have people not eat until nightfall. Um, and we're going to see that this is really to, to curry God's favor. But Jonathan, who's actually out in the battlefield fighting, hasn't heard of this fast. He didn't hear of the vow um, that nobody should eat. They'll be cursed if they do. So he takes some honey when he passes this honeycomb that's dripping in the woods. Um, and because of that, Saul, using the priest later, discovers that Jonathan, his son, violates the vow. And in the name of religion, Saul is ready to put his son to death. Were it not for the fact that the nation intervened, right? They say, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation? Far from it. There shall not be one hair that falls from his head that falls to the ground. Funny how unlike this is of uh, later Israel who would scoff at another savior and say when he was threatened, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Well, here Israel does the right thing and they intervene um, and they they correct the folly of a leader who seems to have it all backwards. And it's important to say at this point, Saul is foolish. Saul is not evil. Um, he's not intentionally bringing harm upon people. He's just a fool. But that's the point. His best efforts bring about human suffering, not human flourishing. The good life that we're all after can't come from us. Philosophers for thousands of years have been trying to discover the secret to the good life. Right? Plato said that the good life is found in the pursuit of virtue and knowledge. And you have the Stoics who say it's by moderation and the Aesthetics who say it's by self-denial and the Hedonists who say it's by self-indulgence. We have uh, Nietzsche who is alive and well today saying that the good life is found in self-expression. Be who you're meant to be. Um, and then you have uh, political leaders who are saying, well, of course, the good life is going to come through policy. That's what we do. And so you have things like the League of Nations, you know, um, back in uh, the early part of the 1900s when this was Woodrow Wilson is saying, this is going to usher in a new age of peace and security, and it couldn't even prevent World War II. Humanity cannot, in our own ingenuity, in our own wisdom, we cannot create the good life for people. Only Christianity provides the basis for true human flourishing. And the Bible tells us that. The Bible tells us it's religion, real religion, religion rightly understood, a relationship with God rightly understood that leads to human flourishing. You know where it tells us that. You know this passage. It talks about the blessed man, the man who has the good life. And what does he do? He meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Right? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, he meditates day and night. And what's he like? He is like a tree planted by streams of living water. Right? His leaves do not wither. And all that he does, he what? He prospers. How does that happen? By a delight in the law of God and the God of the law. There is no good life apart from God. So empty religion cannot produce human flourishing. It can't foster human flourishing. Even if it's well-intentioned, empty religion can't do this. And that's because God's glory is not central. That's the second thing, that empty religion can't promote God's glory. Um, Saul does not do this. He uh, puts himself first, not God first. Look at verse 24. So back to this fast. 
Notice what he's after in the fast. Fasts are meant to be fasts are meant to be moments of sort of like religious recentering, if I can put it that way, right? Where we return to God in repentance, we acknowledge better our dependence upon Him. Um, but notice God's not in the picture. Only Saul is. He says, "Cursed." This is verse twenty-four. Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. That's what it's about. It's about me, Saul's saying. Saul's goal is not God's glory, but his own personal victory. This is the telltale sign of empty religion. Man is at the center. Who's it about? Where does it originate? If the answer is not God, then it's not real religion. If the answer is not the Lord, but not my Lord, but myself, then you are not practicing real religion. If there's not God, then it's not real. It's not genuine. Now, of course, there's this practical component for, for Saul in calling the fast. He's thinking the Philistines are on the run. If we stop to eat, we're going to waste time. We need to capitalize on this advantage, not waste any time, and just, um, and just uh, get ahead of the Philistines. But, of course, there's foolishness in that, right? Sure, they might have more time to pursue the, pursue the Philistines, but that time they have, they'll be traveling more slowly because they are faint, as we're told Twice over in this passage, the people were faint. So there's a practical component, but there appears to be a religious component. It's as if Saul's thinking goes like this. If God sees how serious and how sincere we are in wanting this victory, then perhaps he'll give it to us. Now compare that thinking with the thinking of Jonathan in verse 6 of our chapter. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord. You see, in, in both there's this hope or there's this expectation. The Lord might do this, that the Lord could work salvation. But in Jonathan, the hope is grounded in this promise, this, this understanding of who God is. Nothing can hinder God in Saul. It, the hope is founded in himself, Saul's own ability, Saul's own performance. Nothing can hinder God from saving when he sees how religious I am, when he sees how good I am, when he sees that I fasted for a whole day. Now, later on in the story, we're going to see Saul's act of building an altar. This is the second kind of religious um, act that he engages in. And even that is rooted in a selfish motive. Uh, he wants to avert the judgment of God. Okay, so the fast is motivated by self-promotion till I get vengeance on my enemies. The altar is, is motivated by self-preservation. He doesn't want God's judgment to come on the people. Why would God's judgment come on the people? Well, they're sinning in that they, now, now that nighttime has fallen and they're allowed to eat, the fast is over, they, they're so hungry, they start eating the sheep and the oxen uh, rare, right? They don't let it cook long enough, and that's actually a sin, in Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel is one of these Levitical holiness codes that made the nation separate from, from other nations. We read about this in Leviticus 3. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. So you can't have raw steak, essentially, is what, what the law is. But Saul finds himself in a predicament that they're so hungry, they're not thinking about that. And now he's afraid they're incurring God's wrath upon them. God's going to strike them with lightning right there because of this sin. And so it's at that point, not before, that he says, let's put up an altar and let's start sacrificing to the Lord. You know what would be really good right now? How about I lead us in a worship service? You see how, 
how it's reactionary. It's not that he actually is interested in worshiping God. It's that he feels his own interests as king are imperiled. It's this selfish motive that makes him determined to be more religious. He doesn't want to receive God's judgment, so suddenly he starts leading this worship service at the altar. Now, I do want to say, just as a small aside, I mean, the, the, the overall point is here that, that this is about the self, not about God's glory. Empty religion cannot promote God's glory. Um, if it's rooted in the self, we're going to be, like Saul, um, only interested in religion if we think it's a get-out-of-hell-free card, okay? But I also want to say it's not wrong to want to get out of hell. The Bible tells us about God's judgment so that we would prepare for it and flee from it and flee to him. It is not wrong to be scared about judgment. Um, it, it's, it, fear can be a good thing, a great thing, depending on what you do with it. That's the key. Uh, Peter Hitchens, he's the brother of the very famous, though now deceased, um, atheist, one of the new atheists, Christopher Hitchens. Peter Hitchens, his brother, is actually Christian. You can look on YouTube. I think the two of them debate. It's very fascinating. But he talks about his conversion, Peter does, and he says that God used fear to turn him to faith. He was, a hotel, he was in a hotel in France uh, when he spotted a painting by a Dutch artist, and the painting was called The Last Judgment, and he says it was the faces of the people um, uh, in terror at the return of Christ that got him finally uh, thinking about his future. This is what he writes in his book. No doubt I should be ashamed to confess that fear played a part in my return to religion. I could easily make up some other more credible story, but I should be even more ashamed to pretend that fear did not play a part in my turn to religion. I have felt proper fear, not very often, but enough to know that's an important gift that helps us to think clearly at moments of danger. And he goes on to list moments, kind of near-death experiences, where fear kind of crystallized, clarified his thinking, and saved his skin. But then he says, but the most important time when I was, that he faced fear, the most important time was when I stood in front of Roger Van, Van der Weyden's great altarpiece and trembled for the things of which my conscience was afraid and is afraid still. Fear is good for us and helps us to escape from great da dangers. Those who do not feel fear are in permanent peril because they cannot see the risks that lie at their feet. So Jesus tells us not to be afraid of man, but he does tell us we should fear him who can cast both body and soul into eternal judgment. Fear is right, especially in response to our sin. But what we do with fear is most telling. Do we trick God into liking us like Saul? Well, I'm convicted of sin, so I'm going to start going to church more often. I'm going to start going to Bible studies more often. I'm going to start giving more because then maybe I'll feel that conviction less. I'll feel God's hand of, of discipline on me less or do we fling ourselves on his mercies and we say, there's nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I'm naked and I'm coming to thee for dress. I'm helpless and I'm looking to thee for grace. I am foul, so I'm flying to the fountain. And if you don't wash me, I will die. It's not if I don't wash me, it's if you don't wash me, Savior, I die. That's the response to fear. That's the right response, making it about God's glory. So the difference between empty religion and true religion, uh, it cannot foster human flourishing, it can't promote God's glory. Those are the differences that hopefully we can now see. What's our motivation? What are we after here? 
Um, but now consider finally and briefly the danger of false and empty religion. And here's the most dangerous thing about it. It passes. Do you know what I mean by that? It can pass. You can pass as a very religious, upright person from a human perspective. Uh, on the outside, it can look to the watching world like you have your life together, like you're spiritually mature, like you're the, uh, the, the, the prime example of virtue. At the end of the chapter, we didn't read that, but you can turn there. This is verse 47. Um, gives a summary statement of Saul's early years as king. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, Ammonites, Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. Way to go, Saul. And it says, and he did valiantly. And he struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. That sounds like a really good evaluation of Saul. We might be surprised to hear that he's done valiantly, especially as we've kind of been saying what we don't like about Saul and what's not good about Saul, but here's the reality. He was a good king in these ways, as, it, as far as it pertained to protecting Israel. They wanted a king like the nations, one that would rescue them from their enemies. Saul does that in many ways, especially in his early years. This is not a, a misguided evaluation, but there is something that's missing that's very telling, and that is any mention of the Lord. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we get a a summary of David's reign that's almost identical to this in terms of its purpose, the intent of it, kind of giving us an idea of his early years. And the Lord's name is mentioned three times. Twice over that the Lord is the one who delivered him uh, victory. And once that David devoted all the spoil to the Lord. What's the difference between Saul and David? David has a relationship with his God. Saul does not. How about you? Do you have a relationship with your Lord? That's the, the key difference between empty and true religion. So it can, you could pass as being particularly devout and, and religious. You could, you could fool me. Of course you could. But you can't fool the Lord. So why are you here today? Why do you do this? Why do you, if you claim yourself to be a Christian, Why? Are you here out of self-interest, out of self-preservation, or for God's glory? Is your religion empty? There is nothing more tragic than to hear this on that final day. Oh, you honored me with your lips, but your heart was far from me. Oh, yeah, you said, Lord, Lord, but I never knew you. Is your religion empty? I can't tell you that. I can't tell you if your heart is empty. You can fool me. You can fool your spouse. You can fool your kids. You can fool anyone. Because on the outside, to us, from our perspective, just like kind of Saul's evaluation there, it can look good. One day, though, what's in your heart will will be revealed. Go back to that embarrassing moment at West Point. Uh, Only now it's, it's your heart that is on the stage. And it's more than in front of an auditorium, you know, a, a crowded auditorium. It's more than even being live-streamed on YouTube. Now we're at the tribunal of Almighty God. This is the day of judgment. This is the last and final and great day. This is where we get to the heart of the matter, literally. It won't matter what religious rituals or exercise or habits you decked your heart with. We're, we're going to look in. And what is there? Why are you a Christian? If it's for self-preservation and self-promotion, then that's nothing. That's vanity. That's, that's the wind. That's emptiness. The only thing that matters is on that day for the Lord to look upon your heart and find there his son.
to find Jesus. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room enough for thee. Is he there? Right? This is the difference between the converted and the unbeliever, even the professing Christian who is an unbeliever. The difference is that those who are born again actually have Jesus. They have him. They possess him. He's there. They, they know him because he dwells within them. We have far less reason for empty, fake religion than Saul because we actually know God as one of us, a person to know. We know his name, Jesus, one who sympathizes with our weaknesses, one who, who, who came and lived a life like us, walked around in our flesh, one who is still wearing our flesh, pleading our cause, interceding for us. We know him. We have a relationship with him. It's all about that relationship. So maybe you need to recalibrate the way you think of some of these things. For example, when we talk about sin, we are not talking about codes that you violated. We are talking about a God you have offended. When we talk about salvation, we're not talking about a bail that has been put up. We're talking about a Savior who was hung up on a cross to die for your sins. It matters today that you recognize religion is not about principles. It is ultimately about persons, namely you and Jesus. See to it that you are right with him today. Let's pray. Father, we uh, ask that you would keep us from self-delusion, from that sin that we see in Saul doing the right things, seeming to care a lot about religion, but actually not caring about the Lord and what you want from us and what you would have from us and of us. Help us to have a real and living faith that is centered on a real and living Lord. Forgive us our sins, for they are many, and draw us into a closer communion and relationship with you through the ministry, the mediation of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's close this morning as we respond in song number 452, Rock of Ages. Let's stand.